You are tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work here on Berkeley campus. Today, I have the fortune of being joined by second-year graduate student Andrew Stevens in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics here on campus. Welcome. Hi, Tesla. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, I think we should just start off by telling people what is that? I mean, that's not a, a normal department that people just throw around at dinner parties, right? Yeah, department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. That's very true. A lot of colleges have an economics department, but Agricultural and Resource Economics is sort of a, a niche. It's it's interesting that we're our own department. Uh, there's a bit of a history to that. So uh, UC Berkeley is one of many land-grant universities across the country, which were set up in the, the mid-1800s. And with the Hatch Act, which happened in the 1880s, that sort of expanded the role of land-grant universities really into agricultural extension work. So you've got a lot of plant scientists and agricultural extension workers at at the University of of California and all of these other land-grant universities around. And as part of that, they sort of started these agricultural and resource economics programs to really bring some economic analysis to agriculture and and to the farmers of the states where these land-grant colleges are. So we're sort of a, a holdover from that We are in the College of Natural Resources, whereas the Econ Department is in the College of Letters and Sciences. Okay, great. So then this is not like a new addition to the campus. This is a longstanding department. Absolutely. We are one of the top agricultural and resource economics programs in the country. And I I think one of the big reasons we persist as our own department is because we exist in a different college. We interact a lot with the the Econ Department and the Haas School of Business. Most of us graduate students take classes with the econ graduate students. The only thing that really makes us much different is that we get to be more interested in more applied work, especially in agriculture and resources and and international development and stuff like that. So I I know what agriculture is, but when you say resources, what what sort of things does that encompass? Sure. So historically, one of the big things was forestry. Uh, Forestry is sort of a less sexy topic nowadays, but you can also think about things like, like fisheries are considered resources. Nowadays, you can talk a lot about energy any sort of you know fossil fuel or renewable renewable power um, is is a resource. Climate change is a big topic that our faculty and graduate students are working in. So it's it's a pretty wide net. And those are hot topics beyond Berkeley. Those definitely keywords that we've heard in the news and just uh, in social encounters, things like climate change and and renewable energy and stuff. Uh, but we'll get in we'll get into that a little bit later. So how did you get into this? What where does your interest lie? What led you to agricultural and resource economics? Sure. So I, I figured out pretty early on in my undergraduate career that economics was sort of a good discipline for me. It sort of matched my my quantitative skills with, with real-world problems that, that dealt with people and society. And I started taking some classes and realized it's too big a field to take the whole thing on. And you really have to know, what is it about this that you really get interested in and what's your, what's your niche? And for me, that turned out to be food and agriculture and sort of this broadly defined food systems approach to a lot of problems that, that we have today, but also that go back a long time in, in, in the past. Most people have heard of Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, and he's talking about agriculture for half the book. It's sort of the earliest economic question and persists to this day. For those of us who maybe haven't read the, the Wealth of Nations. Sure. So Adam Smith is sort of seen as sort of the granddaddy of modern economics. Um, he sort of postulated it as a field of study and and 
you know, he, he penned the phrase invisible hand and sort of started this whole movement of thinking about markets and, and thinking about the economy as, as an entity, as something that we could study quantitatively. Okay, so you just, you wanted to focus on food and not just because you like eating it. I well, no, no. So I, I joke a lot with my friends that um, if I ever do get a job, I have great job security because everyone has a tendency to keep eating. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly why I'm so drawn to it. My dad did grow up on a farm in southern Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota originally, and I used to visit my grandparents' farm when I was a kid. So I think some of that has definitely rubbed off on me. And even though I gave it a little bit of thought, I'm absolutely not cut out to be a farmer. Um, <laughs> so I, I'd much rather I'd much rather study it. <laughs> and what does the PhD program in your department consist of? Is it similar to other PhD programs, or sure? Yeah, I'd say it's it's most similar to a PhD in economics anywhere else. We average five or six years to completion. You spend your first two two and a half years doing coursework and sort of slowly transitioning into doing research work, and then for the sort of second half of your program, you're working on dissertation work, original research and really trying to figure out what your sub-subfield is going forward and where you're going to fit in the wider academic globe. So, okay, I'm biased because I'm a biologist, but when I think of research, I automatically think of like lab coats and, and stuff like that. How do you do research in economics? What What's the procedure for that? Yeah, there are a couple of different things that people do. It's absolutely not like the sciences. We don't have labs run by um, faculty members that we're a part of. I'd say the most of what we do is, in, in my department, is data analysis. So either you take a data set that already exists and you do econometrics, which is a fancy word for statistics, on that data to try and answer some question you've got. If you want to get a little more interesting, you create your own data by collecting it or running what we call a randomized control trial, an RCT. That's what a lot of people in development economics do to create their own data. What kind of data is this? So economics can be reduced, if you really want to be mean, to prices and quantities and supply and demand. And anyone who's taken Econ 1 has sort of seen the dreaded graphs with supply curves and demand curves. So a lot of it is either exchange data, so purchase data or sales data that has quantities and prices or consumption data or price series. One of the projects I'm going to talk about today looks at a government-collected household survey in Peru. So I have expenditure data on foods, but I also have a lot of sort of demographic data about the, the households, how many members there are, stuff like that. And you, you mentioned earlier that you guys do work in sort of international development, and I know that your project uh, at least has an international component to it. What What is that focus within the department, and, and how does that... Absolutely. So development economics is another subfield that... Um, ARE, which is our, our little acronym, we're very involved in, joint with the econ department. There's even a master's program here now, the Master's in Development Practice, which is two years old, which is really designed to teach students how to go do development work, not study it so much as do it well. If you're just tuning in, you are tuned in 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work. Today, I'm joined by agricultural economist Andrew Stevens, and uh, right now he's going to tell us a little bit about what he's been working on over the past year and a lot about food, huh? Absolutely, yeah. Quinoa. Quinoa, yes. So we're in Berkeley. What is quinoa? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So quinoa is this, um, it's a native grain pseudo cereal native to the Andes Mountains in South America. So the primary countries that produce this are Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador. And it's, it's a really interesting topic. So 
We live in Berkeley. A lot of people here know what quinoa is, have had quinoa salads, but a lot of people didn't know what it was 10 years ago. It's sort of this superfood that has been recently discovered. There was this great article in the New York Times in 2011 that really sort of challenged all of, all of the foodies in the U.S. on their consumption of quinoa. It basically said, because quinoa has become so popular in America and Europe and that all of this demand has gone up, the price has gone up a lot. And now quinoa is so expensive that the people who grow it in Peru and Bolivia can no longer afford to buy it. And that this is really sort of raising concerns about malnutrition in in those traditional diets. And I got into this argument with a colleague of mine over this. And I thought there might be a point to this article, and he didn't think there could be. So I said, well, I'm going to prove you wrong and write a paper. So that's sort of how this project got started. And so I borrowed some publicly available data from the Peruvian government. They run a uh, national household survey every year of 20,000 households. They ask questions about all sorts of things. So I took some data from that on, on food consumption to sort of get at what these households' nutrition intake was like and what their food expenditures were so I could back out some prices of different food goods. And I was writing a paper to answer the question whether or not cultural tastes for quinoa in the Puno region, which is where most of this crop is grown, had a negative impact on nutrition sort of over the period of this price spike. So from 2004 to 2012, the price of quinoa in Peru nationally went up by a factor of three, and in the region where it's produced, it went up by a factor of four. But what we saw, which was really interesting, was in the region where it's produced, consumption didn't go down over that same period on average. And this is sort of a puzzle because economists generally think if something becomes more expensive, you consume less of it. That's sort of the the law of demand. So we sort of looked at these summary statistics and said there's got to be some sort of story here. So I sort of went further down the rabbit hole to try and answer what that question was. And it turns out it's a very unsexy result. It turns out at the end of the day that that cultural tastes for for this food didn't really have a big impact on overall nutrition. What had a big impact was whether or not you grew it and what your household income was. There's still an open debate over whether or not cultural tastes can have a big impact on nutrition. My work suggests that they can, but that that food has to be a big enough component of of your household food intake. And even in the households that ate the most quinoa in my sample, it was... 6% of food expenditures. They just eat enough different things, have a wide enough variety in their food basket that on average, the household nutrition wasn't really affected by their cultural tastes. Okay. So we're not hurting people by eating quinoa. I can still buy some at the store and feel yes. okay about it. I just shouldn't buy all the quinoa. or. <laughs> yeah, don't corner the market or anything. Okay. But uh, yes, you cannot feel too guilty by eating your quinoa. And it's not just quinoa that's spiked, though, in that region of the world, right? I mean, I know that at least in Central America, food prices have gone up pretty drastically over the last... You're absolutely right. So in like 2008, especially, there was a a global food price crisis where uh, food prices for a lot of things went up in most places of the world. What's interesting about this case is if you plot the, the prices of most of the foods in Peru over this time period, there's a little bit of movement in a lot of them, and you see sort of a general spike around that time period. But quinoa is just a skyrocket. It's sort of been stable in price over the last two decades, and then 2007 hits, and it just pops up. 
mostly because the the United States and Europe discovered how great of a food this was. It's the only plant that we eat that is a complete protein that has all of the amino acids you need. So my friend with whom I had this argument is a proponent of, of vegetarianism and, you know, loves this quinoa because he doesn't have to eat meat. And so that's sort of one of the big reasons that, that the price has gone up so much is because us people in the developed mm-hmm. world want to eat more of it. Yeah. And we should take a moment to reflect on some of the other amazing foods that Peruvians have given us. Uh, tomatoes, right? Um, I'm not sure about tomatoes, but definitely potatoes. Okay. An ado. I knew there was an ado in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember they have all the terracine and uh, right. different like sci- like traditional scientific ways of growing foods. Absolutely. <laughs> and this is just anecdotal. So if you have any food scientists on here who claim I'm wrong, I'm sure they're right. But I've, I've heard about the traditional way that they would store the potatoes would be they'd put them in these shallow pools high in the mountains, and at night those pools would freeze, and in the day those pools would thaw. And this would happen day after day, and the potatoes became freeze-dried. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah, very, very cool culture uh, down there. Absolutely. So, um, and persistent, obviously, which is why your research is so important. And uh, speaking of research, you had another project Absolutely. under your wings. Yeah, so um, the quinoa paper stemmed out of this article in the New York Times. and But there was this other project I've been working on over this last year. It's a little closer to my heart. I'm originally from Minnesota, don't you know? <laughs> and... I sort of know because of where I grew up and and the communities I'm a part of that back in the 1960s, there was this big national merger of the Lutheran Church. And my colleague, Fiona Wilkes, is really interested in social networks and and how social networks factor into economic decision making. And we were walking one day and I was like, hey, you know, a lot of congregations started merging in the 1960s because there was this big national merger of the churches. That's sort of like an interesting change to a social network. And she was like, that's really interesting. And I don't know anything about social networks. But what's really difficult in that literature is to find sort of a random exogenous shock to a social network. You think about who you're friends with on on Facebook or even just in, in your graduate program and that's completely endogenous. You sort of choose who you want to hang out with. But if you want to sort of know what the effect of the network is on your behavior, you have to sort of shock it mm-hmm. in a way that, that you don't decide. And so we said, these church mergers are kind of like that. That's pretty interesting. And so we went back into the bowels of the library and some libraries back in Minnesota, and we got a lot of agricultural census data from the 1960s. And we called up the National Lutheran Church and got a list of church mergers from that time period. And so we looked at North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. And we were amazed that we found anything. But we found that in counties where a congregational merger happens, adoption of fertilizer, which was a new technology in that time period, or relatively new technology in that time period, happened a lot more quickly. And so we've sort of taken this little toy situation to show that really these non-economic social networks, who you go to church with and how big your congregation is, can actually affect your behavior on the farm, which, depending on who you are, might sound very intuitive or horribly unimportant. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of work in development economics or social network economics, that's something that we've not really been able to show very clearly or very often. So it's really exciting to show, you know, 
who you go to church with might have an impact on what you do for your job. And it's interesting to see where that kind of analysis can take you. Were those mergers only happening in in that Midwest area? So we restricted our, our sample to those three states because in that area at that time, Lutheranism was a majority religion. And there's this great map from the year 2000, and it shows you sort of where the Lutherans are. It was, I think, a Pew Research study or something like that. And just those three states just like pop off the map. It's where the Lutherans are. And um, I was I was raised Lutheran, and so that's sort of how I know some of this uh, background information. And it's been a really wild ride for me to sort of go back to my home state and, and talk to people at these church archives. And I remember one visit I took, there were a bunch of lovely little old Lutheran ladies, you know, filing something at the archives. And they were like, oh, I remember back at St. John's, we merged with St. Luke's and those Norwegians, we couldn't stand them, but blah, blah, blah. You know, it was it was just culturally really, really interesting to me, even though the project is more quantitative than that. It made me happy that I'm in a, a field where you can really pair these very hard science sort of methods with these really interesting human situations. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates. Today, I've been speaking with Andrew Stevens, second-year graduate student in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics, telling us about some of your current work. Where do you see yourself going with it? Like, do you have new projects in the wings? And, and even beyond that, where... Where are you headed? For sure. That's a very appropriate question. Sort of starting my third year of graduate school is where I have to sort of spread my wings and come up with my dissertation ideas and stuff like that. I'd say broadly, I'm really interested in looking at how farmers make their production decisions. This is sort of one of the oldest questions in the discipline. But with some modern techniques, we can really take a more holistic view of of farmer behavior. There are some really interesting things coming out of experimental economics and behavioral economics that I think we can really start to apply to treat farmers as complicated economic beings rather than just a, a big sector of producers. Also, we have new legislation very recently, the new Farm Bill, which has changed a lot about some of the big national agricultural policies. So this is glossing over a lot of details, but our government is moving away from what are called direct payments to farmers towards subsidized crop insurance. And crop insurance sounds great, but very few people really know what the economic implications of of that kind of a program are on a national scale over a long period of time. So I'm really interested in sort of pursuing that kind of a question further. And then there's some really interesting questions about how people eat food and buy food and consume food. Living in California where, you know, I go to Berkeley Bowl, which has the organic thing, the all-natural thing, the gluten-free thing, and the thing that raised without this antibiotic and, and no, but it was 20 more and then 20 more the thing with the antibiotic that's the organic antibiotic right. and you know so to the extent that these things matter which they do i think it's really interesting to sort of understand how how consumers interact with with these products and and the agricultural system more broadly so does it make a difference when we go in there and we think do i want the organic versus the all natural so it does make a difference the difference it's making that's the more difficult question So I'm someone, oh, we're getting political now, but I like this. Um, So I'm someone who thinks that organic, local food, these are all great things. I'm someone who thinks that where we are right now in history and 
recent history, these are still luxury goods. Local food isn't a viable national food policy on a big scale. That isn't to say that we shouldn't be spending time researching this and that people shouldn't lift it up. I think it's something that if you like it, buy it. But you hear some people suggesting, you know, we should be making local food mandatory part of uh, policy. And as someone coming from Minnesota, there's very little local food in January. So I think it's very interesting being in California where so much is possible in the food sphere. And sort of, I, I feel like it's an experimental laboratory for a lot of these policy ideas or these these new methods. Um, there are people on campus here who know so much more than I do about the physical practicality of all of these things. And I get the, the enviable or unenviable job of trying to take those new techniques and, and, and new possibilities and try to fit them into this big economic reality and see where they fit both now and maybe 5, 10, 15 years in the future. Do you have an idea of what might work? So I think that as consumers, it's important that we are aware that our decisions have ripples and that on a large scale, those ripples have a big impact. I would say when it comes to making food policy for other people. So I think about like the SNAP program, which is a supplemental nutrition assistance program, formerly called food stamps. That's sort of something that people are often interested in talking about and and what we should allow people to use those benefits for and this, that, and the other thing. Sometimes I think it's beneficial to take a step back and say the biggest difference you can have in, in the healthiness of someone's diet, if if you want to influence that, is getting them to change from eating highly processed foods to less processed foods. You know, going from eating potato chips to potatoes is going to have a bigger difference on their health and their diet than going from eating traditionally grown potatoes to organic potatoes. So while I think there are some really interesting things coming in the future about organic methods and organic foods and and sort of this whole plethora of things, there are still some low-hanging pieces of fruit that we can pick for, sorry for the horrible metaphor, for policy work. Just what our diets look like, I think, is a, is a bigger issue to deal with in the short term. So where you, do you see yourself going into policy? Is that? So I think it's really hard to do any sort of economic work without having an impact on policy intentionally or unintentionally. If I end up in academia, what I study and what I publish in is going to have ripple effects. One of the other places I could envision myself working is at the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. They have an economic resource, an economic research service, excuse me, that, you know, studies the policies that come out of Congress and the effectiveness of USDA programs and all of this. I'm actually going to be working with them as an intern this summer, which is really exciting for me to sort of get some institutional knowledge about this government body that that enacts all of this. Seeing inside the system. Yes, for better or for worse, (laughs) see how the sausage is made. Nice. (laughs) Quite literally, maybe. (laughs) And... uh... Okay, so you mentioned the master's program that's new. Uh, What other sorts of resources are there on campus for people interested in this, students or otherwise? Right. So there are more programs here that have to do with agriculture or environment or economics than I ever imagined before I got here. So there's the economics department, which has a lot of people doing interesting stuff. There's the agricultural and resource economics department. There's the master's of development practice program. 
There's the Goldman School of Public Policy, and they do work on all public policy-related sorts of issues, including food and, and agriculture and food workers. There's the Haas School of Business, which has a lot of people working on energy. And then there's also something called the Energy Resources Group, which is sort of a more interdisciplinary program that works on, on energy issues. And, and, and people hear these buzzwords like energy and think, I'm not sure that's what I'm interested in. But you think about if you're interested in, in agriculture and you're interested in biofuels, that's energy. You know, we have the Bioenergy Institute just, just west of Oxford Street off campus with all of these resources. It's amazing to me how many people are working on aspects of these questions that no one really knows about. It's really exciting. And so if people want to know more about if a student wants to get where you are today, how do you go about doing that? Is it you just get a degree in economics and then apply to grad school, or is it harder than that or easier? <laughs> well, so I, I've spoken to a couple of undergraduates this semester because I've been teaching, and people have come to me asking me those questions exactly. I think the number one most important thing is to knock on doors, cold email people, especially graduate students. We are often looking for an excuse to procrastinate. Undergrads are a great excuse to procrastinate. We like having coffee, uh, as I'm sure you like caffeine as, as well as I do. <laughs> yeah. And so I think talking with a bunch of people is great. Talking with people in different kinds of programs to sort of see what their backgrounds are and what their interests are. But once you do that, and sort of as you do that, I think the other big piece of advice is figure out what it is you want to do with your degree, and that'll inform what kind of degree you want to get. Getting a PhD in economics or in agricultural and resource economics is a pretty horrible choice for some people who are interested in this work. If you want to go work in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, directly improving the lives of people, you don't want or need a PhD. If you really want to help the legislative process, you know, go into work as an, as an aide or as sort of a non-governmental analyst, a PhD probably isn't necessarily the best degree for you. Maybe you want a public policy degree. If you do decide you're interested in research and teaching and sort of want to go the distance and, and do a PhD, I think uh, the thing a lot of undergrads don't internalize early enough is that there is a pretty heavy math litmus test. It's very rare that an econ... Uh, an undergraduate econ major who just takes enough math for the major gets into an gets into a PhD program. People are really taking real analysis, um, linear algebra, sort of a wider array of things um, to get into those programs, and we do use them in in the coursework. Whether or not we use them a whole lot in our in our research, not as much. But there are a couple of courses that first year that are designed to sort of weed out people who don't have the math chops. So you don't necessarily have, like, your bedroom scribbled with equations all over the walls? No, that was the basement of Moffat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much. Is there Are there any last words you have for the audience? I think my last words are stay interested in this and, you know, ask provocative questions. But then as important as that is to listen to the answers. It doesn't mean you have to read them agree with them. But I think we can listen to each other a lot more around these food and agriculture issues than we do currently. And I really look forward to the next 40 years of work in this field. I'm excited. So I hope other people are too.
Yeah, no, thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, yeah, you're tuned into 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this has been another episode of The Graduates, a talk show where we interview UC Berkeley graduate students about their work. Today, I've had the pleasure of being joined by agricultural economist Andrew Stevens in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. And uh, he's told us all about his work with uh, quinoa and Lutheran church congregations and all sorts of interesting things in a department that I I didn't even really know existed. So it's been great hearing about that and hearing about that field of work. We'll be back two weeks from today, 9 a.m. on Tuesday, June 17th, to hear from climate change biologist Mike Holmes. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.